Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View. Today is going to be an interesting day. The MLB trade deadline is tonight, and teams are scrambling. And by teams, I mean the Yankees. There have been all kinds of cucking going on for the Yankees. It has not been good, especially at the hands of the Mets. Uh, and yeah, so we got a lot of baseball news to talk about, and we'll get right into it. So the Yankees, this past weekend, uh, they played the Boston Red Sox, and it did not go well. They took, or they lost two out of the three, and the two games that they lost were absolute spankings. I mean, the Red Sox put up 10-plus runs in each game. It's not, I mean, not good at all. James Paxton and J.A. Happ got absolutely demolished. Uh, Mookie Betts had a three-home run, three run game against Paxton. And, you know, the Yankees have been skating by recently. Um, not skating by, but they've been playing well because their offense has been excellent. And this series against the Red Sox, although they were... 11 games up on the Red Sox coming into the uh into the or 10 games up on the Red Sox coming into uh this series and they left only uh eight games up or nine games up uh, which is still a lot but it certainly proved that the Yankees need more starting pitch pitching just like it was last year they went last year they went out they got a uh J Hap Proved in the playoffs against the Red Sox, of course, that J-Hap was not the answer. We couldn't necessarily let him go, so we re-signed Hap. We traded for Paxton, uh, and Paxton has been, he, he got off to a rough start, and then he kind of figured it out, and now he seems to be back into like a slump where he's just getting uh, his ass whooped every time he goes out there, and the Red Sox jumped on both of those lefties. And that was the main thing coming into the going into the trade deadline last year also is that we needed lefty pitching or the Yankees needed lefty pitching and they didn't get it. Or they got it with Hap, but it wasn't enough. And then they get they get Paxton this year. And it seemed all right for a while like it was going to work out, but it just hasn't. It's tough with Severino being out. He was projected to be back in like June, July, and then they just kept pushing it back, pushing it back, and now I don't think he's projected back to come back until September. God knows what he's going to be like. Uh, Batances is still out, but that's the bullpen. Our bullpen has been pretty solid given the, the starter situation. But the Yankees were going to be buyers at the trade deadline, as they usually are, and one name that was floating around a lot was Marcus Stroman, the Toronto Blue Jays' ace, and... Stroman is coming to New York, but he's going to the Mets. And for some reason, the New York Mets, who are currently six back for the second place wildcard spot, they're still under 500, I think. They were buyers. They added Marcus Stroman, and they traded, and then they traded Jason Vargas to the Phillies for a double A catcher who's hitting below 200. An in-division trade for a, a good a pitcher that's been good for you for 
pretty much the whole year, you give them away for pretty much like a bag of chips. Absolutely nothing. Um, with Stroman, Stroman was traded for Anthony Kay, triple-A pitcher Anthony Kay, and single-A pitcher Simeon Woods-Richardson. Simeon Woods-Richardson is very, very young. He's like 20 years old. His stuff still needs to develop. He's not projected to be into the majors for the next couple years. Anthony Kay, on the other hand, I've talked about him on this podcast. He's a kid that I know. Very good ball player. Lit it up in AA this year. Uh, had his struggles in the beginning of AAA, but has found his footing. He had a nice outing in the Futures game during All-Star Weekend. And he was traded to the to the Toronto Blue Jays for Marcus Stroman, which is funny. Um, I'll give a little, a little history lesson. So Steven Matz, the Mets pitcher, and Anthony Kay, and me, technically, all went to the same high school. Anthony's about a year older than me. Matt is five years older than me, or four years older than me. How old is Matt? I think 28. Five years older than me, four years older than Kay. So they didn't play together um, in high school, but same high school, same breeding ground. Marcus Stroman also grew up on Long Island. He played for Patchogue Medford, which is a rival of Ward Melville, the high school that I went to. And him and Matt's, Stroman and Matt's pitched against each other this one time where there was so many goddamn scouts uh, in the stands. But now, Kay gets traded for Stroman, and now Stroman and Matt's are on the same team. It's just full circle, really. It's, 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 a weird, it's weird that they got traded for each other. Anthony, Anthony Kay seems to be taking it with grace. He's having fun on Twitter, uh, trying to... Get to know what it is uh, is important to know about Canada and in Canada, their culture and stuff like that. And Marcus Stroman, was, who was there for his whole career, was very much uh, a huge supporter of Canada and Toronto. He loved Toronto. He was always repping it. He wore the number six because he was in Toronto. And now that he's with the Mets, he changed his number to seven, which he wore... Uh, the number seven in high school, I believe. And also, uh, the number seven is like, you know, the seven line kind of thing. That's a huge, uh, like, Mets cult. So he has that going for him now to rep the Mets and the city of New York. Uh, now that Vargas is gone, he'll probably take his spot in the rotation, which I believe is Saturday. But that's one one guy that is now off the radar or unavailable for the Yankees to get. At the trade deadline, someone who I would have loved to have in pinstripes, Marcus Stroman. But, unfortunately, you can't always get what you want. Now, another guy that the Yankees, some people were interested in, was Trevor Bauer. Now, Trevor Bauer is an odd story. He had a career year last year. He was an all-star, like Cy Young consideration. Uh, Very, very, very good. Uh, he wasn't always that good. He's had his struggles this year. A couple days ago, he had a complete meltdown in his last, what proved to be his last start as a Cleveland Indian. He had a complete meltdown against the Royals. And when Francona was coming to take him out, he yucked the ball from the pitcher's mound all the way over the center field fence. Just completely launched it. And you could see Francona when he came out. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, what the fuck was that? And not the greatest way to go out. Um, 
for a franchise that you thrived for, really. But Trevor Bauer, shockingly, was traded to the Cincinnati Reds for Yasiel Puig. Uh, it was a three-team deal and involved uh, the Padres as well, as well. So Trevor Bauer went to the Reds, Yasiel Puig, Fran Mill Reyes, and prospect Logan Allen went to the Indians, and prospect Taylor Trammell went to the Padres, and I think Trammell was from uh, Cincinnati. But uh, that's the three-team deal. So Puig is now an Indian, and the Indians now, for the past like four years, have run away with the AL Central. Um, they've been really, really good, and then they've just been good some some of those years, but they've run away with it. No one has really challenged them. And now this year, the Twins are capitalizing on all the talent that they've cultivated on their team, and they're making it all work. The Twins are very good this year. I don't know how it's going to translate to the playoffs, but right now in the regular season, they're very good. They have the most home runs in the majors. They have solid pitching. They're doing well, and they lead the AL Central. So the Indians are trying to add pieces to help them uh, get over that hump. It seems a little weird. Like, Trevor Bauer had to go. Like, they weren't going to pay him. They have Corey Kluber. Uh, they don't... They, I'm not going to say they don't need Trevor Bauer. Like, Trevor Bauer is a pretty good pitcher. Kind of feel bad he got traded to the Reds. It's kind of fucked up. It's kind of... Like, it's like an FU move. Um, Mike Francesa was kind of like the... The Yankees don't need Bauer. He's a hothead. Yada, yada, yada. And then he, Trevor Bauer snapped back at him on Twitter. And then, of course, like not 24 hours later, he has a temper tantrum on the mound as he's getting pulled out of what was his final game as an Indian. And he chucks the ball to center field, proving Francesa right and probably also uh, making the Yankees not interested in trading for him. Now, a lot of teams... Or the rumor is that a lot of uh, GMs and front offices are kind of mad of what happened with uh, the Stroman and Mets deal. Because as as much as I love Anthony Kay, I think he's going to be great. I think he like he's a mentally strong player. You know, works his ass off. As much as I think he's going to succeed in the MLB, the projection on him right now from scouts and GMs is that he's a back of the rotation starter until he develops his breaking ball more. And Simeon Woods Richardson, as I mentioned, is still very young and needs to to work on his pitches as well. So he's not projected to come in for another couple years also. So when you give up those two guys who aren't, they're top Mets prospects, but not top, barely top 100 prospects. Kay, I think, was like the 95th top prospect in, in baseball. And Woods Richardson wasn't even, uh, he wasn't even up there. So when you're giving away that quote-unquote little for a guy of Marcus Stroman's talent level, it drives the market value for pitchers during the deadline way down. And a lot of GMs weren't happy with the Blue Jays for doing that. I, I don't know if that is a direct result of what the, the Reds got for Bauer or is it just if it's just the way that the, you know, the temper tantrums that Bauer has had and the performance that he's had this year kind of drove down his value, but... The Reds only had to give up Yasiel Puig for him and a prospect, I think, to the, the Padres. But those are two of the big trades that took place before the deadline. 
Uh, like I said, the deadline is tonight. I think it's at six. But the Yankees, Brian Cashman's on the hot seat. Like, I mean, not the hot seat, like his job's on the hot seat, but like the hot seat where the fans want him to make a move and want him to make a move like now. He, it has to happen. That he has to go out and get a starting pitcher. But the r- rumors on the street are that everyone and their mother is asking for prospects that are untouchable. There have been three teams that have asked for Glaber Torres, which is absolutely, like, utterly ridiculous to ask for Glaber Torres. It's like laugh out loud funny. He is untouchable. No one's touching him. The only ones that there's so there's guys like uh, Clint Frazier is very available. Um, other guys like him, top prospect guys, but not big key pieces for the Yankees' future. Right, Glaber Torres obviously one of those futures. And Duhar is available, which, goddamn, looking back on it, it's it's so tough because we have Urshela, like the Yankees have Urshela now, who's been lights out defensively and offensively. So, and Duhar, I mean, and Duhar stole the who was it Drury. Was the the starting third baseman last year? He got injured the first couple games, and then Andujar came in out of nowhere, and he was an absolute stuff. I miss it, Miguel Andujar. Liability defensively, but offensively he was great. He got injured, and then Urshela outplayed him, and then he had to have surgery. So Andujar is out for the year, but he's still a solid piece that can be traded. And I wish we traded him last year for a really good player, because now we have Urshela. But you can't you can't fix that. You can't predict that. But he's available. Frazier's available. I'm sure a, a couple of other uh good not great prospects, but good prospects are available for trade. Cashman's gonna have to make some of that magic happen like he usually does, man. He's the best GM in baseball. I have a lot of faith in him. He's gotta make something happen because it is very painstakingly obvious that after this series with the Red Sox that the Yankees need another arm. They they need a, a solidifier in the rotation. As for the Mets, I don't know what's uh what's going on with them. Um there is an interesting thing that I would like to read on air. Pete Alonso tweeted this uh let's just say an hour ago. He tweeted a, a letter it was like a little notes letter she says, Mets fans, thank you guys so much for your unwavering support. You guys have been unreal all year. We are in crunch time. We've played over two weeks more on the road than at home thus far. During the months of August and September, we're going to have a ton of more home games. The boys are hot, and we've been working our asses off. Hard work has really been paying off this second half. The rest of the season is going to be a really fun, wild, and memorable ride. Our goal is to make history. We strive every day to be great and nothing less. We need you guys, the fans, more than ever for the last two months. Together, let's be a part of history. LFGM. I guess that means let's fucking go, Mets. Um, Stroman quote tweeted it saying LGM. Uh, but Pete Alonso has been like this all year. Uh, he has been a guy who is on social media. He's in the press. He's doing post-game. He is, like, trying to light a fucking fire under the Mets 
so hard, and I commend him for it. it. It's something that, like, the Mets have not had a leader like this since maybe David Wright, although David Wright was very soft-spoken. He, Wright was more of a Jeter-esque kind of leader where he was uh, more of a locker room guy than a, a media guy. Pete Alonso is, he's out there, I mean, granted, when Wright and Jeter were, like, in their primes, like, social media wasn't a thing. So, Pete Alonso is out here on Twitter trying to spark Mets fans to to get them to get wild, come to games, support the team, believe in the team, and I commend him for it because the Will Ponds are kind of ridiculous, and it's hard for any logical Mets fan to root for them when the Will Ponds are so unpredictable with how they're so unpredictably predictable <laughs> with what they're going to do uh, during like trade deadlines and what they're going to do to quote unquote try to win. But I, I respect Pete Alonso for trying to to rally these guys and like this this fire for this this uh, this late push. There's like I said, I think there's six games back or five games back in the second wild card spot. So they definitely have some work to do. Uh, I think the acquisition of Stroman, like they have the best, they arguably have the best rotation in baseball right now. On paper, it, it shouldn't even be a question. They have, they should have the best rotation. DeGrom, Syndergaard, Mats, Stroman, and Wheeler. That, that has, on paper, that has to be the best rotation in, in baseball. Those are like five all-star caliber guys. They are fantastic. It's But the bullpen is so detrimental to the Mets all the time. Last night against the White Sox, Syndergaard throwing a gem. He threw a gem. Seth Lugo in the eighth inning getting out of a bases-loaded jam with a ground ball double play. And then Edwin Diaz comes in and blows the save. The Mets are currently five games back of the second wildcard spot. So it's the Nationals in first at 57 and 50. The Cubs and Phillies are tied at 56 and 50. Milwaukee's 56 and 52. San Francisco's 54 and 53. Arizona's 54 and 54. And the Mets are 51 and 55. All The Mets should be better than all those teams. Their bullpen is so bad. I mean, Edwin Diaz, I saw a hilarious report, the the title of the report uh, for Yahoo Sports, saying that the Mets might ask for Andrew Benatendi from the Red Sox for Edwin Diaz, and I audibly laughed out loud. The Red Sox are in dire need of a closer. Uh, They've been struggling all year, still a pretty solid team. You put them in any other division in baseball, they're probably leading it. Or close to it. The Red Sox need a closer. They're not giving up Andrew Benatendi for Edwin Diaz. That is a laugh out loud trade proposal. There's like the Mets have some set of ball. The Wilpons have some set of balls on them to even like think that they're going to get a good haul for Edwin Diaz. His market value could not be lower. You you should be able to get Edwin Diaz for. Uh, like a bag of chips. Refilled the vending machines, bro. Like, that's all it is. He he stinks. He stinks. He is the worst of the worst of closers right now. 
I, I can't like you can't even put into words how bad this guy is. Like there there's no confidence. And it doesn't help for the Mets either that Jerry's Familia stinks too. Like he's not doing well. No one in the bullpen aside from Robert G- uh, Gazelman and Seth Lugo are reliable. No one in the bullpen's reliable besides those two guys. That's all they have. If the Mets had a decent bullpen, they would be 10 games over 500. At least. They have like 20 something blown saves this year. It's absolutely ridiculous. Not even not blown saves, but like late game uh blown leads. So like 8th, 7th, 8th, ninth inning they go in with the lead and then they lose it. That shouldn't be happening. The offense last year, all Mets fans complained about was how good Jacob DeGrom was, how good the rotation was, but they couldn't score runs. They couldn't get hits when they needed to. This year, they actually have a good lineup. Jeff McNeil is second in the MLB in batting average, or he actually might be leading the league in batting average. It's one of the, like, he's first or second in the league in batting average. Pete Alonso is probably going to win Rookie of the Year. He has, like, almost 40 home runs. Michael Conforto is playing really well. J.D. Davis is a doubles machine. Even guys like Ahmed Rosario, doesn't they, he doesn't completely suck anymore. The Mets, I'm not kidding when I say the Mets, like, they'd be so much better if they just didn't make that trade. I can't believe how much this trade backfired for them with the Robins and Cano and Edwin Diaz. Cano stinks. Like, yes, he's still very good defensively and all that. But offensively, he, he's he he's been a train wreck. I mean, he had that three-home run game. But other than outside of that, like, he has not been consistent at all. I think he's 0 for his last 20. The longest hitting drought of his career. Diaz can't close games. If they kept Dunn and Kellenic, Kellenic would be in... I think Kellenic might be in the majors right now. He... I mean, he would just add an extra, like that outfield of JD, just make the everyday outfield JD Davis, Kalanick, and Conforto. That's a great outfield, even just on paper. The Mets have I can't believe, like the Mets have actually been hitting, and their pitcher, the starting pitching's there. The offense is there for like seventy five percent of the time. Yes, sometimes they struggle and it looks bad, but most of the time they're getting good hits. And then the bullpen just blows it. It's it's utterly ridiculous at this point. And then there was talks about the Mets might trade Syndergaard. And I almost lost my shit. Like, you can't trade Syndergaard. And now reports came out today that the Mets have pulled Syndergaard from the trading block. He's not going anywhere. You can't trade Syndergaard. If you're trading anyone, it's Zach Wheeler. The Mets are an anomaly, dude. I just, I can't. I can't believe it. I I can't believe there's there's like there's always a problem. I can't believe it. Last year it was the hitting. This year it's the bullpen. Well, last year, to be fair, last year there it was a lot of things. It wasn't just the hitting. Let's be real. But you fix the hitting part. You have the starting pitching. You've had you've had the starting pitching. You get these young pieces in there. Everyone's performing. And now the bullpen can't do anything. But I commend Pete Alonso for trying to rally this team. The Wilpons make... I don't know if the Wilpons really 
if the Mets, if they made Brody all this, if they made this move for Stroman because they really thought it was the move that was going to get them over the hump and it was going to allow them to win and win now and win fast, I don't know if they made this trade because it like they're just reloading for 2020 and they're going to go into the offseason and spend money on relievers and maybe a bat and they're just going to reload for 2020 and make that push then or it's all just a sham and then it all falls apart when Stroman leaves in free agency <laughs> who knows dude I, I don't know what they're going to do I, I think what Zach Wheeler does Zach Wheeler have a year left or he has I don't know He I don't think he's a free agent after this year or he might be it's this year or next year it's it's struggling. They're, I never know what's going on with the Mets. They look like they're ready to go, but at the same time, this very well may just blow up in their face, and they'd have to reload for 2020. But then, knowing them, they don't. They sign one guy, and it's not enough. Quick piece of football news: The Saints, Michael Thomas becomes the NFL's highest-paid wide receiver with a five-year, 100 million dollar extension, 61 million guaranteed, according to Adam Scheffner. Well-deserved for Michael Thomas. He is, I mean, hands down top five wide receiver in the NFL. Uh, you can argue about where he is on that list, but top five nonetheless. He is Drew Brees' go-to target. Um, he didn't re- uh, I I heard today he was paid less than a million his first three years in the NFL, so this was well-deserved because he, he has been lighting it up for years now. Uh, so congratulations to Michael Thomas getting paid. And now that sets the market for top paid wide receivers. I think Julio Jones has two years, 21 million left on his contract. So he's going to be looking for an extension. I'm sure as well as other top flight receivers in the future. But now that we're done with that, we'll get into our movie review. Quentin Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. It is an excellent film. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, Tarantino is a psycho when it comes to like 60s, 70s Hollywood. It's very well documented that he has an incredible fascination with that era of Hollywood, of society, of pop culture in general. Uh, He loves that shit. He eats it up. And this movie is filled with nostalgia. Um, Not my nostalgia, but nostalgia for that time. And I went to go see it with my parents, and they were giddy with, like, every little single detail um, from the can openers and the ice tray, uh, how... Back in the, the like 69, 70s, that era, ice trays used to be metal. And they'd have a metal bar where you'd pull back on it and that would break all the ice in all the giant ice cubes into smaller crushed ice that you would put into your glass. And my parents would say, You could you used to be you should probably you could probably kill someone with those ice trays. They were heavy metal things. And Tarantino had that. He had uh and then they pointed out like the the can openers, these these little details that he put in there, that really uh, this made the scenes 
feel more realistic. You know, the billboards of things that were playing and all that. Um, Margot, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. Uh, I think she was good. I, I don't... Like, people got mad because they didn't give her enough lines. But when you see the movie, like, the movie isn't about Sharon Tate. It, it's It's not. It's about... Brad Pitt and Leo's characters, and then Sharon Tate happens to live next door. That's that's all it is. The movie's not about her at all. It shows how their stories kind of intersect every once in a while. But other than that, it's not about her. Um, they actually, one thing my mom pointed out in the movie theater was that, uh, so in the trailer you could see it also, she goes to see a movie that she's starring in, and when she's in the theater... The, the film that they're showing on the screen is real film. It's not, like, recreated at all. It's the real movie, the real film from that movie. So it's actually the real Sharon Tate that you see on the movie screen. Uh, and then Margot Robbie's in the stands, like, watching that. So it's that's pretty cool. One thing that you didn't see really at all that you kind of saw in the trailer, uh, Manson, Charles Manson, he's not really in the movie. He, uh, he's in the movie, I th he's in one scene, I think, if I'm not mistaken. He's in one scene. And the trailer shows him, you see him with, like, the swastika carved into his, his eyebrow, uh, the middle of his forehead. Uh, you don't see him with that in the movie at all. The only scene you, he comes in was, if you remember, like, obviously, I'm, if spoilers, and if you've seen the movie like you know what I'm talking about is when he comes to uh Sharon Tate's house and he's like oh I thought so and so lived here and he's like and uh Jay whatever like Sharon Tate's ex fiance whoever is there the weird dynamic they have going on there he's like nah man you gotta leave you gotta leave you gotta leave they don't live here anymore get out get out of here get out of here he's like all right man all right all right and he leaves and then Later, that's the house that he tells uh, his quote-unquote children to go um, kill everyone that's in there. But that's the only time you see Charles Manson. He's not in the movie at all other than that. Um, so that I, I think I like that a lot. I like that he's not in the movie. He's very weird. It's bad vibes. You don't like that shit. Um, as for the actual movie, the plot really isn't too important like this movie is very character driven and I love it for that I think Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are both going to look at Oscar nominations in the near future um, they're both fantastic in the movie uh, I think so this is the first movie they've ever done together I think the dynamic that they had together on screen was awesome I really felt like they were best friends and there are a lot of scenes where they're like just chilling out. They're having heart to hearts. They they sit down and watch a cameo that um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character made in uh, F the show FBI, which is a real show in 1969. Um, and they sit down, they crack open some beers, uh, and they have just like a, a bro out, and they watch his his cameo on the show it's great um 
the last act of the movie is really good. Uh, it's kind of like a, t- a six-month time hop where Leo's character is going to do uh, Italian westerns. Um, Brad Pitt's character is there. And then Leo gets married to this Italian broad and Leo gets married to this Italian chick and then there's like a whole voiceover about how um, Leo, uh, how Leo has to cut Brad Pitt's character loose because he can't afford both of them, like his wife and now also him because they kind of more or less live together and hang out all the time. Leo pays for a bunch of his shit and they get blasted blackout drunk and they go back to the to their house to Leo's house and Brad Pitt takes a walk with his pit bull he smokes an LSD an acid um soaked cigarette and it it the final act is just nuts man with everything that the the, the Manson kids coming in getting their shit kicked by uh the Pitbull and Cliff Booth was awesome. Leo laying in the pool with his headphones on, jamming out, and the girl comes in with just screaming. He's like, what the fuck? He gets his flamethrower. I thought it was I thought it was fake. I thought it was gonna be just like snap back, like, oh, it was just all in this in Brad Pitt's head or Cliff Booth's head because he's tripping on acid. And it was just something that he was thinking about. Nope. A hundred percent real. Um, they end up killing the Manson kids, and Sharon Tate invites uh, Leo's character into into the house for a drink because she feels bad and she lives. So there's this whole build up that like, oh my god, they're doing. There's this whole build up where they're doing timestamps. It's like. This it's like eight o'clock, nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, and it shows what all these characters are doing, and what also what all the Manson kids are doing, and it all comes up into this climax, and they walk into the wrong house, and then they all die. <laughs> it's crazy, crazy revisionist history that Tarantino has done before. If you watched Inglorious Bastards, he did the same thing where Brad Pitt and his uh, his gang of characters they burn down like the opera house or whatever it is that Hitler's in they burn it down and they kill him and they end up killing Adolf Hitler and end the war so another revisionist history that Tarantino did with the Sharon Tate murders and I I liked it a lot it gives this sense of hope like this this alternate reality where what if Sharon Tate flourished to be this great actress and wasn't known for just being brutally murdered while pregnant in her house it's it's dark but it's it's like perfectly tarantino and i totally get it um it's not my favorite tarantino movie for sure not but it is very very good i enjoyed it very much uh it's it's hard to explain like i'm not gonna go into all of it Obviously, there are a bunch of things that I've probably missed because I've only seen it once. Uh, I went to go see it on Sunday afternoon. So there are probably a bunch of things that I missed, and it definitely deserves a rewatch. 
It's a long movie, two hours and 41 minutes. But it's very good. I never really felt like it It dragged. Um, maybe a tad in the middle. It seemed kind of like there were some unnecessary things that were going on. But then it just... Well, as soon as you... If you even feel that way, it picks up very quickly. I think... I mean, it's it's just a good it's a good movie, and I don't expect anything less. And I love character driven movies. You know, like the plot isn't the plot isn't really essential in this movie. It's kind of just like an everyday in the life kind of thing, and how these characters and their careers are progressing, and all that. And I just don't think. Like the plot isn't, it's not integral to the storytelling. The storytelling is told through the characters and what, who they are and what they're doing. And I think I like, I like movies that are more character driven than plot driven. Sometimes, like obviously when the plot's really, really, really good, the movie's really good. But when the plot is, when you're more focused and invested in the characters and the plot, I like that. It's a good change of pace. And Tarantino does that with a lot of his movies. Um, and one of my favorite parts of the movie, I have to say, is the interactions with Brad Pitt and the Manson children. So there is a scene where so Brad Pitt drives past uh, a couple of the Manson kids as a group a few times. And he has kind of like a, a flirtatious back and forth with one of the girls who ends up giving a ride to and um. She offers to, you know, suck suck his whatever. And I'm trying to keep it a little PG on this on this podcast. Um, but she offers to do that while he's driving. And he asks for how old she is. She's like old enough, pretty much. And he's like, can I have some ID? And she doesn't have ID. And he's like, you're right. You don't have ID because you're not old enough to have it. So no thanks. They end up he ends up driving her back to where the Mansons are hiding out. And you can tell Brad Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's character, has a weird feeling as soon as he gets there. It's all run down, worn down. Everyone is, they're all hippies. And hippies, everyone hate, they hate hippies in this movie. <laughs> it's really funny. They, they don't like hippies at all. So he knows they're all hippies. He knows something weird is going on here. And he knows the guy who owns the plot of land that they're living on. So he asks to see them, and they keep trying to tell him, no, 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 no. He ends up forcing his way in there, and you think the guy is going to be dead because that's what it feels like, that they're trying to hide the fact that this this dude's just, like, dead in a house somewhere. But he ends up just sleeping, and he, uh, he finds out that he's okay. And he comes back out, and they're all kind of booing him, booing him, booing him as he walks back to his car that has a knife in it. And he beats the shit out of the one guy that knife that uh flat flattened his tire, and he makes him change it, and he drives away just as, uh, like the one I guess alpha male that's on there because Charles Manson's not on the premises, so the guy who's supposed to be watching over everything gets back. Austin Butler, I think his name's Tex in the movie. But that whole sequence, that whole scene was probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. That and when Rick Dalton. Uh, Leo's character when he's on set of that TV show he's doing he's playing the bad guy and 
he messes like he forgets a, a couple of his lines and then he goes back into his trailer and he starts screaming you embarrass yourself in there you embarrass yourself and he's talking about how he's a drunk and he hates alcohol he like throws his flask out of the uh the trailer and then he composes himself listens to his lines goes back out there and does uh, a ransom scene where Luke Perry actually makes an appearance in the last thing I think he ever filmed. The late Luke Perry, who comes in as like the rich mogul guy who needs to pay Leo's evil character. And he does the line, the lines flawlessly. And everyone was like, wow, that was so great. That was so great, Rick. Oh my God, that was amazing. And the little girl that was playing, you know, the, the girl that was being held for ransom, they had a dialogue back and forth before. Um, and she comes in and tells him, she's like, that was the best acting I've ever seen. And he, he like starts, you saw that in the trailer also. He starts crying and he's like, yes. And he like coxes the fake gun. It, that, that sequence and the, with Cliff Booth at the Manson farm are probably my two favorite parts of the entire movie. And then. Just based on like both of them not being in the same place at the same time, having their own separate things going on, respectively, those are my two favorite parts. And then, of course, the final ending fight scene that I couldn't believe was real uh, is also an all-time moment in that movie. But overall, I would definitely go and see this movie. Uh, it's going to probably Tarantino is going to be up for probably like original scripts and stuff like that screenplays uh director brad pitt and leo are probably going to get uh lead and supporting actor nominations um it was a great movie i had a really good time watching it i'm gonna put a number on it i guess 90 out of 100 would definitely recommend would definitely want to go see it again uh which i might who knows but yeah once upon a time in hollywood living up to some of the expectations. Uh, and I'm glad it was it was different than I expected. And I'm, I'm really happy it was. So that'll wrap it up for this episode of From My Point of View. Thank you all for listening. Have a great weekend and talk to you guys next week.